it's a very dehumanizing experience. And because it's a gamified experience, you stop thinking about the people behind these faces and you just see faces to sort through. Like you're playing Candy Crush and the people are the candy. <laughs> Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Stick around to find out exactly why we're candy crushing the dating experience and why it may not be such a good thing. But first, let's get into this week's Pop 5. Remember me different. It's Britney, bitch. Pop, pop five. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Hold on, check me, man. Pop 5. what I say. Let's start with the story of the weekend. News of a big breakup in Hollywood. Heat no more. In case you missed it, Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson are going their separate ways. The It couple is calling it quits after just nine months. And it feels like they just started dating. Because they did. But unlike some of Kim K's former flames, this breakup doesn't have the same level of drama we're used to watching on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Kim and Pete ended on good terms. They say they're both just too busy with projects and couldn't do long distance. Understandable. And they're still friends. But the split does have some fans wondering, can Kim and Kanye get that old thing back? Ye has been throwing shade at the couple and of course had something to say about the split. He posted a fake death announcement for Pete that read, Skeet Davidson, dead at 28. And apparently Kim wasn't happy about it. It's since been deleted. But whether or not we see Kim Ye together again, well, outside of divorce court, who knows? Four. The Rock and Kevin Hart have been making the rounds for their new animated movie, DC League of Super Pets. And during an interview, they were asked one question that still has everyone talking. What celebrity would you want to be a pet to? Megan the Stallion. Oh, that's a good one. Why Megan the Stallion? Well, we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> okay? Okay, Andrew, just leave it out there. Why are you laughing? You know who wasn't laughing? Megan Thee Stallion's boo, Hardy. He seemed a little upset after seeing the video. He posted a tweet that kind of threw shade at The Rock and his wife, and then he deleted it. He later came back and posted, of all the things to be worried about, y'all think I'm mad at The Rock? Ugh, it kind of seemed like you were, sir. But hey, don't let those Twitter fingers get you in trouble. On Thursday, the verdict came in for WNBA superstar Brittany Griner. A Russian court found her guilty on drug charges, and Griner was sentenced to nine years in a Russian prison. She's also been fined one million rubles, which is over $16,000. Reminder, Griner was arrested way back in February for having less than one gram of cannabis vape oil in her luggage. And we've been following that story ever since. Many suspect that Griner is being used as a political pawn as tensions are high with the U.S. and Russia over the war in Ukraine. It seemed like the initial strategy was to not make too much noise about the arrest and quietly get Griner home. And unfortunately, that didn't work. Fans aren't keeping quiet anymore. Neither are Griner's teammates nor the WNBA. A day before the verdict, fans chanted, bring Britney home after a moment of silence for Griner. From WNBA legends when Cash to celebs like Kerry Washington and Andy Cohen, people are calling for the government to bring Britney home. And it isn't over. 
President Biden released a statement calling the sentencing unacceptable while reminding people that Griner is being wrongfully detained. There are reports that a prisoner swap for a Russian arms dealer is on the table. So let's hope that Brittany Griner will be home soon. We wanted to take a moment to celebrate singer, actress, and activist Olivia Newton-John. She recently passed away at the age of 73. You may know her from chart-topping hits like Physical, but the thing that skyrocketed her to fame? A little musical called Grease. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you've probably seen, sung, danced, and quoted a line or two from this movie. And Olivia Newton-John Sandy gave us the most iconic moments. The tributes are pouring in, but one that's really pulling at our heartstrings is from Danny Zuko himself, a.k.a. John Travolta. He posted about how much Newton-John meant to him, and he even ended it with, You're Danny. Those two will always make the list of favorite movie couples. one couple this week that's getting attention for a different reason. If you're still swiping for love, stay in line. One Boston couple found it in a Popeye's parking lot of all places. A recent New York Times wedding announcement that tells the love story of Sherea Wade and Stevenson Boyce has Twitter divided. Back in 2020, Wade and Boyce met on Hinge, started talking, and decided to meet in person. Pretty normal, right? even though this was peak pandemic times. Here are their profiles. Boyce is a community college graduate and an IT system cybersecurity engineer for a local clothing company. He's 10 years older, previously divorced, and was dating five women at the time that he met Wade. She's a Bryn Mawr graduate and a VP at a financial services company who seemed to really be looking for somebody, despite what her friends are now saying on Twitter. Now, here's where some people are seeing red flags. The first date was in a Popeye's parking lot. And yes, it was his suggestion after canceling on her twice. He bought himself KFC from across the street. No word on if Sharia ate. And after that endearing encounter, it was a whirlwind romance. They made it official the next month, moved in after six, and not long after that, they got engaged in Barbados. And in a very weird twist, Boyce's friend actually bought the engagement ring. The couple insists that he paid him back. A lot of readers felt like this wasn't exactly the kind of romantic meet-cute they're used to reading about in the wedding announcement section. And some accused the New York Times of romanticizing a Black woman settling for less. Raya's friends hopped on Twitter to counter that, saying the couple is happy and she married a great guy. And of course, there were lots of other people who came to their defense, telling us all to mind our business. Me, I don't have a problem with struggle love. I just don't want to read about it in the New York Times like it's some reverse Cinderella. I mean, he invited her to Popeye's. He didn't even buy the ring. And there's an Instagram page that seems to be theirs, ran by him, where he bragged about not having to take her on fancy dates or having to buy her expensive dinners. Like that was a good thing. Talk about raggedy. I could go on and on about this story and the woes of meeting people online. But more about that later in the episode. First, what the heck is happening over at HBO? One of the biggest questions we had last week, why aren't we going to get Batgirl? Warner Brothers has scrapped its upcoming Batgirl film, and it won't be hitting HBO Max as originally intended. This morning, 
Batgirl defeated. Even though the movie's already been shot, it's going to cost them 90 million bucks. So, why would a company kill a movie they've basically already finished, 90 million dollars in? Well, there may be a few reasons. The whole thing's full of drama, and it's got big implications for the future of home streaming. So here's what you need to know, skim for you in under four minutes. Alicia's timing me. Yep. Ready? Okay. Batgirl was dreamed up as a direct-to-streaming DC Comics movie hit from creators Adil LRB and Bilal Falah, the same pair that brought us Miss Marvel to Disney Plus earlier this year. And people were excited for Batgirl. Some of the buzz was around representation. Leslie Grace is a Latinx woman, and she was in a lead superhero role. Ivory Aquino is a trans actor who was playing a trans character, Batgirl's best friend. And then there's the creators, Alarbi and Falah. They're both Muslim Belgians with roots in Morocco, and their resumes are something serious. And they've been open about wanting to bring more diversity to movies. Also, Michael Keaton was coming back as Batman. I'm Batman. So what went wrong here? Well, there's a new boss in town. The movie and plenty of others were getting made during a huge corporate shakeup. Back in the spring, Warner Brothers merged with Discovery. And now they're combining their two streaming services, Warner's HBO Max and Discovery+. Plus. The new super streamer is coming next summer. But the blend seems kind of weird, considering these two brought us Insecure and Euphoria and, you know, 90 Day Fiance. And this merger also leaves a lot of questions up in the air, like, am I still going to be able to use my cousin's boyfriend's account? We can't quite answer that question yet. But here's what we do know. The new big guy calling the shots is CEO David Zaslav. And there are reports that he hated the pandemic strategy of sending movies straight to streaming. Dune, King Richard, Matrix 4. If you watch those from your couch the week they drop, that's because the old boss at HBO Max thought it was a good idea. Since, you know, movie theaters weren't so much a thing at the time. Back then, in the long ago era of last year, HBO Max was all about using big releases to build a subscriber base. And these days, a lot of people are rethinking that. I mean, have you seen the news out of Netflix lately? So some of this is probably Zaslav cleaning house and making room for his own big ideas, including a new strategy around the DC universe, which he and his big merge company now control. And part of that is returning to a movies-to-theater-first strategy. People have also noticed that other HBO Max originals have been vanishing from the streaming service lately, like The Witches with Anne Hathaway and Seth Rogen's An American Pickle. Maybe not everybody's favorite films of the last few years, but to have them disappear without any explanation is weird. Some people are cynically speculating that killing off Batgirl now might have saved Warner Brothers Discovery some money on their tax bill too, letting them write it off as a loss. The company had its latest earnings call last week, and we learned that it lost almost $3.5 billion in the second quarter. So maybe everybody with stock in Netflix is actually feeling good for once. All this has some people worried about what else might get cut from the HBO Max lineup, which a lot of critics and fans have considered to be the best streaming service out there. Please, please, please don't touch rap shit. I just started watching it. Whatever his plans are, Zaslav could maybe work on his bedside manner. 
When somebody asked him on that earnings call why the company cut back, girl, he said, we're not going to put a movie out unless we believe in it. Ouch. Star Leslie Grace, meanwhile, posted a video of somebody lip syncing to shake it off on her Insta story. And the directors, Adil LRB and Bilal Falah, said they wish fans could have had the chance to see the movie for themselves. And quote, maybe they will someday. Inshallah. So fingers crossed. If you are a person who dates people and has access to the internet, chances are you or someone you know has used a dating app. Some of you are probably even swiping as you listen to this podcast, and you're in good company. According to a Pew Research study, 48% of people 18 to 29 say they've used or are using dating apps. That number is a little lower for people 30 to 49, but not by that much. People have been finding computer love for over two decades now. Sites like Match.com appeared in the mid-90s when you had to actually wait for the internet to dial up and slowly load the profile of a potential lover. Now things are as easy as whipping out your phone and swiping left or right. And because of that, dating apps have become ubiquitous in our culture. Online dating is a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's changed the way we look for partners. Even going back to the 90s and early 2000s, you could tell this whole meeting people online thing was here to stay. Movies like You've Got Mail and Must Love Dogs explore online love. And one study linked our love of reality dating shows to the state of online dating in real life. And now shows like Soulmates and Black Mirror show us a dystopian view of where we might be headed. What's funny is that even though online dating has embedded itself in our lives, a lot of us hate it. Almost half of the people in the Pew study who use dating apps said their recent experiences left them feeling frustrated. About 40% said their experiences were somewhat negative. Of course, there are some success stories. About 1 in 10 people in the U.S. say they've been married to or in a committed relationship with someone they met on an app. And hey, maybe you'll meet someone on an app and they'll invite you to a fast food parking lot for your first date. And then boom, you'll end up married. But for most people, dating apps offer a lot of endless and pointless interaction without much payoff. And if the latter mirrors your experience, you might have online dating fatigue. Using dating apps is a sort of numbers game. So you're just swiping through so many options to the point where it really dehumanizes the people that you're looking at. Jessica Klein is a contributing reporter for the BBC. She wrote a great piece for BBC Love Life in which she talked to a bunch of people on dating apps and some therapists about dating app fatigue. Every day on Twitter, you can find people lamenting the state of dating, and many of them blame the apps. So what makes the apps so awful? Why are we still using them? And is there any way to bring joy back to dating? We live in a time where we have lots of choices of what to watch. We can order food and we have lots of choices of what can be delivered to our house. And we also have lots of choices of people that we can date. 
But having all those choices, like it may be counterintuitive, but it actually can make things more stressful. It doesn't necessarily make us more happy. Yeah. One of the people I spoke with for this article, he referred to it as decision fatigue. There's this idea that, oh, choice brings all this freedom with it, but really it can kind of do the opposite sometimes where you just sort of feel trapped by all of the choices. You get paralyzed and can't make a decision, especially if you're seeing sort of similar people over and over or not even similar people, just a lot of them. (laughs) Decision fatigue is actually a real thing. Psychologists and therapists say it refers to our reduced ability to continue making decision after decision. So basically, it can become harder to use dating apps over time when you're constantly deciding on who to swipe yes on, how to start the conversation, and where to go on the first date. Someone talked about in the article, like if you swipe however many people and you match with like 10, you may get one or two dates, which was interesting to me because when I swipe, Like, I'll usually say, okay, I'm going to do 30. Like, I'll count to 20 or 30, and that's all I'm going to look at. I just can't keep doing this. Knowing that, like, at best, I might get one or two right back. If I do that a few times, I might get one or two dates, which is a lot of of looking at people to only end up going out on one or two dates. Yeah, I think the number he gave was, like, out of 10 people you talk to, maybe two or three you get their actual phone number, and then, like, one of those you'll go on a date with. And I talked to another person who said that I think she was talking about swiping through literally 100 people to find one person who was moderately interesting to her (laughs) and who she'd maybe want to talk to. She literally said it just feels like there's so much to wade through to get to even one person who you might match with. And then that's just somebody who you have chemistry with via messaging that might not even translate to a real life date but you've already taken a lot of time to even get there. So there are signs of dating app fatigue. There are things that people do. What should people look for to figure out, like, you you may be a little over this? I think the basic one that I kept hearing, it just comes down to people feeling like it's a job. That's really it. It's making you really exhausted. And when you open the app, you're not sort of excited about meeting somebody or even the potential of finding a date. You're just like, Okay, this again, like clocking back into work. (laughs) And then when it starts to just genuinely get depressing for you, like when you start to get so disheartened by these experiences that you start to think, oh, there must be something wrong with me that I'm not matching with these people. And the way dating apps work is not a reflection of an individual, unless you're the person who's behaving terribly on a dating app. But again, different story. Also, the way people react, like people that delete the app a lot or hide their profile a lot. That's a sign that like you're kind of over this thing. <laughs> yeah. Or like you switch from one app to the other to the next thinking, oh, you're going to get better results. And then it just doesn't end up feeling very different. And that might be because many of the popular dating apps are owned by the same company, Match Group. The folks behind Match.com own Tinder, OkCupid, Hinge, Plenty of Fish, Ship, Our Time, and a few others. Basically, they own all of the big ones except Bumble. But still, some folks have their preferences. A lot of people seem to like Hinge because of the setup. It makes you sort of answer more genuine questions about people instead of just swiping based purely on looks. But at the same time, that was the one that people felt had really used an algorithm a little bit more. Whether that's true or not, that's where people felt like they were just getting fed something based on what they put in their profile or people they matched with previously. 
And again, those were based on those superficial qualities, not like sort of deeper things and desires about the future. So that was kind of a problem. And then the Tinder one is the obvious sort of like just endless (laughs) swiping based on faces, just sometimes from personal experience. It gets too exhausting to even read everybody's profiles. You just do find yourself swiping just based on like just the first picture. You don't even scroll through to the second one. (laughs) And a lot of the apps have paywalls that can make users feel like they're missing out on the real experience. And behind those paywalls, there is some useful stuff. The ability to see who actually likes you. The ability to start swiping ahead of time when you're visiting a new city. And this one's a big one. The ability to filter out folks you aren't looking for. I was talking to somebody who had very specific ideas about the politics of the partner that they're looking for. But in order to filter that way, they said that they would have to pay to do that. And so then they're swiping through like twice as many people as they would, knowing that half of them are just people they're going to immediately not want to take anything further with. So we've laid it out. People are tired of dating apps. They erase them. They're tedious. The algorithms suck. But yet, (laughs) people are still really on dating apps, which is one of the most popular ways to find a partner, and especially among millennials. Like, most people I know who are single are on dating apps or have at least been on them at some point. Okay, we hate them. Why are we still on them? I think the best analogy I got was from a licensed graduate professional counselor in Baltimore who said to me, you could compare these apps to like Amazon or Facebook, basically, and that they're so ubiquitous and so accessible that they've just become the norm. It's just like, oh, you need to order something. You order it on Amazon. You're looking for a date. You go to the apps, especially if you're not somebody who hangs out in bars, which is kind of like one of the better places to meet people organically in real life. That's very limiting. And then I think the pandemic, too, a lot of people got even more used to interacting with people via screens. And people also got more comfortable being able to literally screen people before meeting them. I think those are two big things. And the other way to sort of meet people organically in person is to maybe like belong to, say, your community garden, which was an example one of the people I interviewed for this piece gave. But he found that he was the youngest person in the garden by decades. So he's basically like, yeah, this, this is not where I'm going to meet somebody, but this is where I'm, you know, meeting new people in real life. <laughs> for sure. Like sometimes your interests just might not line up with like you finding a partner and then you don't want to choose interests based on like, can I find a partner there? You know what I mean? Like that kind of takes the fun out of it. Right, like what a weird angle to go out of class or something. Like you're just looking around there to meet somebody. That's creepy. (laughs) It's very creepy, right? I've interacted with men who say like, they no longer approach women on the street, partially because they can look in their app and have all these choices of women, but also from the standpoint of like, Women have talked a lot about street harassment and not wanting to be approached in the street by strange men. I wonder if you came across any people who are like, I don't meet people in person because I think that that's weird now or like it's easier to do it on the app. Yeah, it is just weird in most contexts. Like I said before, kind of sitting at a bar is one of the only places I can think of where it's not that weird to just like strike up a conversation with the person next to you. Maybe a coffee shop, but people kind of go to coffee shops like to meet people they were planning to meet, to like do a solitary activity, do work. But, you know, I'm like working in a lap in a coffee shop on my computer. I don't really want someone to come up and hit on me necessarily. <laughs> 
So cold hollers might be down, but in recent years, there has been a push to return to more traditional ways of meeting people, like speed dating, and some people are even turning to matchmakers to find a boo. Of course, professional matchmaking never went away in some cultures, but for the rest of us, matchmaking seems to be making a bit of a resurgence. Several publications like the LA Times and the Boston Globe have written about the growing popularity of matchmaking services in recent years, and many of the matchmakers they talked to said business is better than ever. But still, for a lot of people, matchmaking has its barriers. Matchmakers, that does cost money, and these dating apps are free. It is also a time saver. You get to scroll through all these people in minutes. Not to say it's very productive, but it's, it's quick. <laughs> One thing that's interesting to me about this, like in the days back when dating apps were still pretty new, like the eHarmonies and the Match.coms of the world, when they would promote themselves, a big part of it was like that it worked, that you could find a partner. Like these people get married and we're serious and whatever. And it feels like now the dating apps don't need to do that. You know what I mean? Like it feels weird. Like they've lost the plot and the whole thing that like ultimately the goal is to get off of it. And I wonder if you looked at anything about the way that like dating apps market to people or talk to people or even our perceptions about it and how that's changed over the years. Yeah. I do remember for a while, there were all these hinge subway advertisements about the goal is to delete the app, but you know, it's a marketing campaign. So who knows? I think for the most part, the design of the apps is to keep you on it. I mean, that's a business model with any social media platform. It's the same as like Twitter, Instagram. They do better the more time you spend on the app. So like business wise, they want you to stay on the apps better for business if more people are on it for longer times. While dating app fatigue doesn't discriminate, the apps themselves and the people on them do. So the experience can be different depending on who you are. There have been lots of studies that show that dating apps are largely sexist against women and racist. Women of color, particularly Black women and Asian women, are more likely to be fetishized and stereotyped by potential matches online. We're also more likely to not find a match when compared to white women and other people of color. And this is also true for other groups as well, like Asian men. There are apps targeted to specific ethnic groups like East Meet East or BLK, but those apps aren't always a safe place for the intended audience. I was writing an article also for the BBC a little while ago about non-binary people using apps to date. And I was talking to one person who was saying how they would try apps that were like targeted for like black users. And they found that that wasn't necessarily any of a better experience than using apps like Tinder or whatever. So I think that was kind of disheartening, too, because I think they felt like they had been really marginalized on apps like Tinder for not just like their race, but also being non-binary and a lot of other things. But it was harder for them to even find like a safer space anywhere else. And then women looking to date women, there are like some apps like her is a dating app for, you know, just for women. But I think the complaint there that I heard was that there just weren't enough users. No matter what the app, a lot of people just aren't that invested in the conversations they're having online. I think it was Plenty of Fish a few years ago did a survey. It was like 800 millennial users 80% of them had been ghosted during the dating process. And I feel like that number could be even higher depending on how you're defining ghosting too, whether it's just like saying hi on the app and then 
disappearing or whether it's like you have a long conversation and then disappear, whether you go on a date and then disappear. And the bad behavior doesn't just stop at conversation etiquette. People can be downright mean and disrespectful on dating apps, and women often bear the brunt of it. There's a study that I mentioned in the article. It was a Pew Research Center study that said 44% of female users under 35 were getting called offensive names, and 19% were facing threats of physical harm on dating apps and sites. That's a lot. That's very prevalent. It's like once that happens to you, even once, you're like, okay, I don't really want to, this isn't really a safe space for me anymore. I even had a friend go on a date with somebody and then afterwards tell him, like from a dating app, and then after that say she just wasn't really interested in seeing him again. And he kind of exploded at her in this really surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, but she was surprised, (laughs) surprisingly misogynistic way where he's kind of like, oh, you're like, you're just like all the other girls, blah, blah, blah. And that also makes me wonder what his experience has been like on the app. Maybe he's been ghosted a lot and that's where he's coming from. Not to excuse his behavior, but just to think more about like, why is somebody reacting in this way? I've had something very similar. One date wasn't a great date. Very politely said, I'm not interested in taking this private. And then just got a wall of like text messages, like calling me all kinds of names. And it's similar to what you're saying. I'm sure he's had an experience where he's been ghosted a lot because it was a bad day. You know what I mean? But he can just like, you know, curse me out. I block him and then he can get right back on the app, take some other woman out on a bad date and then curse her out as well. Like it just the cycle just continues, mm-hmm. which is awful. What is it about apps that makes people behave in ways that they maybe wouldn't if they like met somebody in person or met somebody at a bar? It's a very dehumanizing experience. And because it's a gamified experience, right? How the app works to get you to stay on. It's like Twitter, other social media, where you get kind of addicted to that swiping. And you stop thinking about the people behind these faces and you just see faces to sort through. Like you're playing Candy Crush and the people are the candy. (laughs) I mean, if you're sitting next to somebody at a bar, you're not going to just like stop talking in the middle of a conversation, which was like the analogy to ghosting on an app, you're not going to just blatantly comment about their appearance and how it's not right for you. I mean, you could, some people do do that, but when you're sitting there right in front of somebody and the consequences of being terrible to them are going to affect you in real life in that moment, you're just not going to behave that way. Did you talk to anybody who's been on a dating app longer than like a week, you know, who still likes the apps? Is, Is anybody not tired of it? No, (laughs) no is the short answer. (laughs) But there are degrees, right? Like everybody's tired of it to an extent. There are some people who like still use them and they're like, this is fine. I mean, think about dating off apps too. People are going to get tired of that regardless. I think just dating in general is a very exhausting experience unless you get like pretty lucky early on or you're one of those people who just like really thrives (laughs) in that scenario, which they're out there. Not every person is going to be pleasant or right for you. And especially if you're really looking for a partner and it doesn't work out repeatedly, whether you're on an app or not, that's gonna get frustrating and exhausting. I feel like dating apps, I only have fun with them when I'm traveling. 
And I think it's because like, one, like you have all these very new people in new places, but also it's low stakes because it's like, we could have some like foreign love affair and fall in love and whatever, but also it's probably gonna be just something for vacation or this, this trip. And so it's fun and it takes away the pressure where most of the time we are dating to find a partner or at least something kind of serious or a person you could see more than once, you know what I mean? You know what? That actually rings true from the people I spoke with because the people who did have fun with it and didn't get burnt out were the ones who weren't looking for dating. They were just looking for hookups or like a fling or something casual. And those are the people who were like, who were actually having fun with it because they didn't have these high expectations. <laughs> I feel like the most success I hear with apps are people who are just kind of in polyamorous relationships or ethically non-monogamous ones and they're looking for that. And I maybe I wonder if maybe that goes kind of back to what you were saying, where if you're not just sort of looking for like one partner to marry for life, maybe it's like apps are a better way to do it. I don't know. <laughs> I asked Jessica if she talked to anyone who's figured this thing out and if there's a way to make the online dating experience a little less daunting. I think what I mostly heard, especially from counselors and people who talk to their clients or patients a lot about these issues, is it's really important to set the app down. When you when you feel those signs of burnout, where it starts to feel like work, when you feel dread when you're picking up the phone to look at the app, that's when you maybe just take a break. Just don't use them for a while and approach it with fresh eyes later. When all the faces start blur together, just take a break for a while. Another tactic that I've had suggested to me is limiting how many people you're chatting with at a time in the app. Again, that's tough because it does work like a numbers game where the more people you swipe, the more likely you are to get to start those conversations. But once you've started up at least like two or three, maybe max conversations, just stop swiping, stick with those, see how it plays out. But that's, yeah, I think that's kind of the best you can do. <laughs> That's it for us this week. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show, and I work with a very hardworking and talented team every week to make it possible. Alicia Key is the show's producer, and we had production help from Blake Blue Maryland. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer, and we had engineering help from Ellie McAfee-Hahn. Graylin Brashear is our senior director of audio. Big thanks to Jessica Klein for joining us. We'll have links to her work in the show notes, including a link to her story on online dating fatigue. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe and tell a friend.